Uh, how many people remember exactly what they were doing on July 1st, 1985? Yeah, none of us, right? Probably celebrating Canada Day, I know. I know. Uh, it was a notable day because it was Canada Day, but it was also noted for something else, apart from the celebration for our country. It was the day that cell phone service started in Canada. Yeah, the first call was actually between the mayor, Mayor Jean Drapeau of Montreal and uh, the mayor of Toronto. I think it was David, I uh, can't remember his last name. Uh, anyway, and, and it wasn't actually a service that began that day. It was the demonstration of the service. But that month, a man named Victor Sorreras, he was a funeral director in Peterborough, Ontario, became the first person to purchase and use a cell phone. We're not getting any... No. Okay, you got to see this. You, you really have to see this. There we go. All right, there it is. There it is. Okay, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the first cell phone in Canada, and that's Victor. And he's smiling, and I'm not sure why, because the phone, the phone itself cost him $2,700. Uh, but it did come with its own carrying bag. You know, you got a bat for free. Uh, and when he traveled, he could actually plug his car antenna into, and that car, car antennas are something you just don't see anymore. Or you do it like a little fin on the top of the roof, but used to be those long things. And you had to plug that into it. Uh, his bell, it was a bell cell phone. His plan cost him $10,000 a year. I, man, I've got bell. And I'm never going to complain about my cell bill again after that. No. Now, but there's, but we do complain about stuff like that. We complain. You know, we, see the, we seem to see what's wrong before we see what's right. Um, you know, when you're, when you're in a crowded theater, though, one thing that I know that we've complained about, because, yes, I am guilty, like when you're in a crowded theater and they ask everybody to please put their phones on silent in the middle of a performance, and then in the middle of a performance, you hear a ringtone, a ringtone. Oh dear, One, that actually happened here at a memorial, a funeral service for somebody. The person who was, was leading in the procession took, told, told all these people, uh, make sure your phones are on silent. And just when they opened the doors to walk in, his cell phone rang. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> well, actually, in, in the middle of a performance, it's not nice. Um, in Slovakia, about 10 years ago, there was a violist who was playing a concert, and in the middle of the concert, here's what he heard. If I can get it to work. Come on, you. Now, oh, temporarily muted, I know, yes, yes, thank you. You're familiar with this, right? That's the Nokia cell. Uh, that was the popular Nokia tone. And in the middle of the concert, he hears that going off. And he looks out over the group and he kind of, and then he goes on his viola, and he did a whole riff on it for about 30, min 30 seconds. And then, and then he stood back and took a bow. <laughs> that's, that's panache.
That, that, that guy's got, got chops. Anyway, uh, yeah. Well, phones going off in concerts are pretty minor irritants, you know, in, in the greater scheme of things. And not many people would throw a big fit over something like that. But sometimes, like we saw on the Oscars last week, uh, something pushes somebody over the edge and makes a situation intolerable. And, and say, in, in your workplace, for example, it might be somebody, another employee who bugs you for all the time. He bugs you for the umpteenth time until one day you snap and you say something or you react in a way that you didn't want and you regret it. Because you have to be careful, though, as certain actors finding out this week that your actions can dictate your future. Yeah. Some things are innocuous. They're not big deals. Others can become catalysts. Now, in chemistry, a catalyst is an element that uh, speeds up a, a, a chemical process. But a catalyst can also be defined as someone or something that triggers an event. It can be used in that sense. And this morning, we're going to be looking at two things that were catalysts to move Jesus on, toward his death. Toward, on his journey to the cross. And on the surface, each of those things looks just like a, it just looks like a natural human response to other human activity. But behind them was God's master plan to set things right for his creation and his people. And so for these three weeks, this, this week and the next two, leading up to and including Easter, we're focusing on this incredible gift that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, please pray with me as we begin. Lord Jesus, I, I really do pray as we already did, but I want to say it one more time. Give us something fresh. Show us these same events that are so familiar, but in a way that we really get it, that we really understand what was happening. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, if you will turn to John chapter 11, we're going to not start at the beginning of this chapter, but uh, this is a chapter, it's a great, great story. We usually preach it um, about Lazarus. In this, Jesus has come to a town called Bethany. Bethany is a village uh, about eight, six, eight kilometers east of Jerusalem, and uh, it's only a short distance away, and it's where a town where two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus lived. And he came there because he had heard that Lazarus was sick and he knew he was going to die. And he came there and he did something amazing. He, rose, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He brought him back to life. And we're going to pick the story up, not there, but with the way that the religious rulers responded to what they had just saw. So it starts at verse 47 in that chapter. A couple of, couple of sentences in from the, the header in my New International. It starts this. It says, Then, after this had happened, and they'd heard about it, they were told what had, he had done, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the ruling, the ruling council. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here's this man performing many signs, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, 
who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And he's just being pragmatic. He's just being, and what he doesn't know is he's actually being prophetic. He did not say this on his own, John, John explains, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and that not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a, vis to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Wow, so this, this happens in the springtime. This, I don't think they had plum trees like we have right here. Man, but it happened in the springtime just before the Passover, the annual Passover festival that celebrated God delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. Jerusalem was in a festive mood. It was a party. It was a joyous celebration. And people would flock to, to Jerusalem. It was filled with travelers who would come all from all over, come back to Jerusalem for this annual pilgrimage. Uh, normally, Jerusalem had a population in the first century of about 60,000 people. So it wasn't small, but that's a lot bigger than Abbotsford. But in, during this festival, it would swell to as many as 300,000 people. So there wouldn't be rooms for anything. Uh, there would be tons of people there. And they were all there to offer an annual sacrifice to the Lord at the temple. Now, the priests and the leaders should have just been overjoyed at this time of year. They should have been overjoyed, but they aren't. Because as they walk through the crowds, and the leaders, and they walk through the streets, they hear what's really on people's minds. Do you think Jesus is going to be here? I don't know. Do you think he'll come to town? Maybe he can tell us about God's kingdom when he comes. And they're going, wait a minute. No, no, you guys are supposed to be focusing on us and the temple. So, this, we're talking today about catalysts. And, and raising Lazarus from the dead wasn't the first miracle Jesus did, by the way. It wasn't. That was turning water into wine at a wedding. Yes. Go, Jesus. <laughs> but it caught the attention, this one caught the attention of all the religious leaders. Actually, what caught their attention, they, they would even, weren't even focusing on the miracle. What caught their attention was the reaction of the people, the response of the crowds to Jesus. That was the first of the two catalysts that moved this story forward and accelerated it. The priests were infuriated. 
Wait a minute, come on. We're the servants of the Lord. These people should come to us, not this itinerant preacher. Jesus had been walking around Israel and Samaria for three years teaching. He was a, 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 an itinerant teacher and a rabbi. He went all over Israel and Samaria. And this isn't the first time they've had problems with him, but they've had it with him. I mean, every, they, he tried, they tried to debate him, and when they did, he would counter them in such a brilliant manner that they'd end up looking a little bit foolish. Nobody likes to look foolish. But did they learn anything from him? No. Were they open to hearing about God from this amazing young rabbi? No. Instead, they see what the people are doing and the adoration of the people for Jesus including some of the other things he did, like John 2 tells us he went into the temple uh, and where they had set up tables to, uh, for currency exchange and were selling animals in a spot in the temple they weren't supposed to even be. And he turned the tables over and he, drew, he, he drove them all out. I think that caught their attention. Definitely did. The threat that people might turn away from temple worship catalyzed the hearts of the religious rulers. Why is that so significant? Well, let's face it. Preacher today, pastor today, we don't have a lot of power. (laughs) You're all going like, right, pastor. Sure. But a priest in their culture had great power. A priest there could decide if your sacrifice was acceptable to God or not. He made the decision. The priest also could control where you purchased it. So they had official suppliers, if you will, for the sacrifice animals and things. And he could tell you there what you should do and what you should buy. And all of that power, as well as that authority and prestige they had, would be gone if the people started listening and started following Jesus. So from that day on, John says, they started plotting to take Jesus' life. Wow. But they feared the people. They, 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 600,000 people could be one angry mob. They feared the people, or 300,000. You wouldn't want to arrest their hero in plain sight. So what they started looking for was some sly way, something out of the public eye way that they could, could, could arrest Jesus behind the scenes. The priest's focus was really on self-preservation. And they, self-preservation. They, they were angry, but, but they were also afraid They feared that they were going to lose their position of authority as God's priests. And if they lost that, they lost their power. Their focus was self-preservation. Yes, they were were zealous over their understanding of the law of of Moses, their understanding of that. But don't kid yourselves, the power was part of that. 
uh, their highest priority end up becoming maintaining the, what was going on, maintaining the status quo, making sure things stayed the same. So they devised a plan. They were further catalyzed, though, to act uh, when Jesus rode into town, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was symbolic of coming in peace, not as a warrior. A warrior would have ridden a horse. Uh, they took palm branches. They went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How did the leaders respond to that? It's a few verses farther on in John. Verse 19 says this. It says, see, they, they said, see, this, this is getting us nowhere. This, their tolerance of Jesus. This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. We're going to look closer at that next week because what I just described is the events that we now call, of course, Palm Sunday. It was the Sunday before uh, Passover in their time. That's the second catalyst. The second catalyst that would seal Jesus' fate happened six days before he entered the city. It actually happened when he was at a dinner in Bethany. Uh, so we're going to continue our reading in chapter 12, uh, starting at verse 1. Excuse me. Six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So this is a while after the events of chapter 11. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He, he did not say this. John editorialized, editorial comment here. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Oh, those treasurers. <laughs> it's okay, Joanne, we know that you're good. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him... Many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Oh, what a tangled web. Um, so this is dinner is in, actually in Jesus' honor, and the three, the three siblings, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus, are all there. Martha serving, Jesus, or Lazarus is just at table. 
And this was the second catalyst, and it was Mary anointing Jesus' feet in an act of worship. So Jesus is reclining at the table. Mary comes with this. It, was a, it would have been an alabaster jar. Uh, it was, perfume was set in a, in a jar that had to be broken and couldn't be reopened to be used. Alabaster jar filled with nard. It was very, nard was made from uh, two plants. One of the plants imported all the way from Nepal to, to, to Palestine. All the way from Nepal. So it was very expensive. And she broke the jar open. The perfume couldn't be put back. And she anoints Jesus' feet. And Judas just, he, he loses it. Doesn't take it well at all. Why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor? And on the surface, that's not unreasonable, is it? That's a lot of money. You think of how many meals you could serve? What this says, though, is he doesn't get it. Mary is, 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 is a, this is an act of worship for Mary. And he is saying, this act of worship was a waste of resources. A waste to anoint Jesus? Well, certainly it was an extravagant act, no question. The perfume was worth a year's wages. Mary must have been quite well to do, the family, because to afford that kind of perfume. But even I tried to figure, okay, how, much, how expensive was this? More than, a, more than a Nokia cell phone in 1985. It was actually, they said, a year's wages. And even at today's minimum wage here in BC, that would be well over $20,000 in value, almost $30,000 at full time. Uh, the other gospel accounts, you know, Matthew and, and Luke, say that the disciples, it said more than one. It wasn't just Judas. It said the disciples, some of the disciples rebuked her harshly for doing this. Um, well, that word that they used for rebuked her harshly, it means to snort and to roar. <laughs> I like that. Uh, it, it's the kind of, you know, when you see a horse that snorts, it's, it's kind of that word. They huffed and they puffed and they just got totally bent out of shape about it. And then Jesus just stops that. He just says, leave her alone. She did this. She saved this for the day of my burial. Matthew, in his gospel book, says Jesus told them Mary, what Mary had done was a beautiful thing. And the phrase he used, the literal translation of the beautiful thing is a good work. And they would have understood that right away because good work was a technical term. It was doing things like um, visiting the sick or, or taking in homeless strangers or preparing the dead for burial. Those were good works. And Jesus saw, though, what was behind their objections. He knew what motivated them to complain, especially Judas, because Judas was stealing. Uh, but he also knew what they didn't know. They still didn't understand that in only days, he was going to go to his death. So he reminds them, you know, you could have been helping the poor all along, 
anytime you want it. Now, this statement about the poor always being with you is misunderstood and misquoted all the time as, as if it's a justification for poverty. It is not. It is not. It wasn't supposed to ever be that way. In the Old Testament, God decreed as part of their worship and part of the whole system of ownership of land and properties and possessions, every 50 years would be what was called a jubilee year. So if you bought a piece of land from someone in a different clan, there were 12 clans and there were 12 tribes in Judah, in Israel, at the 50th year, it reverted to the original owner. If a person was sold themselves into slavery and agreed to work for someone as a, as a domestic slave, on the 50th year, whether there was, they were only supposed to be for seven years only, but if, the, if they did it in the 49th year and the 50th year came along, they were released from that contract. It was to set things right. It was to make sure there was no poverty, that no one person could gather all the resources. If the people of Israel had released people from their debts, there wouldn't have been poor people in Jesus' day. But they didn't ever, ever celebrate the Jubilee. And from the time that that was instituted until the time that they were sent into exile, the Jubilee was never celebrated. So the presence of poverty was actually a sign that they weren't obeying God's principles. It's still a sign today. Uh, 20 years, a couple of decades ago, there was a campaign actually in the 1990s called Jubilee 2000. And what the campaign was about was the world's richest countries in that campaign, the world's richest countries canceled more than $100 billion of debt owed by 35 of the world's poorest countries. That's a, that is a beautiful thing. <laughs> but we still have poverty. Uh, in 2019, in Canada, 1% of Canada's population owns 24.8% of Canada's wealth. Globally, 1% of the global population owns 50% of the world's wealth. And it's something like $240 trillion. And if you think that's bad, the eight richest people in the world own as much wealth as the poorest three and a half billion people. Kind of puts it into perspective, doesn't it? This isn't right. If Israel had been obedient, God said he would bless them abundantly, but they hadn't. So Jesus was saying to them, friends, I know the perfume's expensive, but even if, you, if it was sold and you had the money, you still wouldn't have used it to feed the poor. 
because he saw behind what they were saying. The perfume was put to good use. He said, Mary, what he literally did is he said, Mary did what she could. And literally, he said, what she had, she did. She didn't think twice about the value of who she was anointing. And she was obviously a woman of means who was very generous in her devotion to Jesus. And Jesus said, she did a good thing. And because of what she did, she will be remembered forever. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still remembering what she did. What she did was both symbolic and suitable. It was symbolic because Jesus was about to die and these perfumes were used in burial. It was suitable because Jesus was worthy of all worship. He was the King of Kings. Yeah, it wasn't fragrant perfumes, not, not just nard, but others were, all, were used for burials. Um, but Mary chose to honor Jesus extravagantly. And Jesus said she would be remembered forever. Well, here we are. Her attention was completely on Jesus. She really wasn't concerned about what the others would say. Uh, her whole focus was to serve and to worship her Lord. But this was the final straw to Judas, who was intent on advancing himself. Now, we know he was, what he was thinking when he saw the perfume poured because John recorded it. But what would he think as the week progressed from that point? And Jesus reiterated that he had come to die. Judas, perhaps he was disappointed in Jesus. Perhaps he saw no future following him. I mean, if he was going to be dead in six days, what's the point? Perhaps it was also fueled by greed. And that's the point John made in verse 6. What do we call today when people take the money when they feel like it? <laughs> Stealing. Still called stealing. Judas misses the point completely. And he failed to appreciate the true nature and the mission of Jesus. Well, in that result, he walks away from God. His whole focus appeared to be just cutting his losses. He wasn't going to follow Jesus anymore. But he'd end up, he ended up selling him out to the religious leaders offering them money to find a place where he knew Jesus would be so they could come and arrest him. So there you have it. Mary, selfless act of worship that became the catalyst that sped Judas to betray his Lord. And the plan fell into place. And the priests and teachers found their sly way to arrest Jesus. You know what's the most disturbing about this episode, what we talked about today? It's this, this contrast between the hate, the hatred of the religious leaders toward Jesus and the love that was demonstrated by Mary. The rulers 
and and there's mm, there's there's a lot of evidence to support this. The lunar the the lunars the the rulers were lining their pockets, and they didn't want that changed. They were willing to put a contract out on Jesus. Jesus Judas, he, he became the unwitting but willing accomplice to do that in their plan. I mean, you think about this guy. He had spent three years with Jesus. He knew, Ju- he knew Jesus' love, and he knew Jesus loved him. Every bit as much as he loved the others. But when Jesus' plan didn't fit with Judas' plan and hopes for the future, he willingly betrayed him. I know it's, it's a dangerous thing. You're not supposed to read into actions. You're supposed to take what the Bible, the correct way to understand the Bible is to read out from the scriptures, not read what we think into them. So you, you have to be careful when, when you do things like uh, impute motive or look for, for people's motivation behind some stuff. Um, we don't want to do that. Because we don't know completely why Judas betrayed Jesus. We just know that he did. From a human point of view, this, it looked like the death of Jesus was just caused by bad human behavior. A bunch of priests that didn't want things to change and a guy who was disillusioned. But God's plan was that Jesus would lay down his life as a sacrifice for us. Jesus told his followers over and over in the weeks leading up to this. And in those three years, he told them over and over, but they didn't understand what was going to happen to him. In, in Luke, he told them plainly. He said in Luke 24, he said, The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And they went, What? Nah, what, 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 what do you mean? But then he, actually Luke 24, 7, where that is, is after, he's, after his resurrection. So, and then he goes, don't I tell you this? And then he tells them again, and they go, all right, yeah, okay, now we get it. <laughs> after, you're, after you're risen from the dead, Lord, sure. But those decisions of the religious leaders in Judas catalyzed this plan. It was God's plan all along. But the human servants in their sinfulness, those things became part of that. But I question, how much is too much to lavish on Jesus? Now, intellectually, you all know the right answer, right? But the answer does say how you feel about possessions and wealth and Jesus. Is money the true and only measure of something's worth? I sure hope not. (laughs) Well, we're in big trouble. (laughs) No. And we can, we need to guard ourselves a little because we can look at at a magnificent church building and, and we can look at it and kind of grumble that maybe the money could have been used better to feed the poor. Now, I don't, now don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that extravagant spending on a building is right. But 
Sometimes people build things and it's more about us than about him. It's more about we want to have a lovely place. Aren't, didn't we do a wonderful thing for Jesus here? Wow, look at this. Not out of adoration for him. And maybe there are times when we, we should give to the poor instead. The point of the story, though, is not what Judas tried to make it. It's not to debate the merits of spending. It's really to contrast the hatred and the love. Few of us, I don't think any of us, could afford to give, well, I don't know. Maybe you could. I don't think very many of us could afford to give a year's wages in service and worship. But what Jesus said Mary did applies to us. Do what you can. Do what you can. Mary had means. Mary was able. What she had, she did. What she had, she used. Finally, the 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 sad story here of Judas reminds us not that that we, we are to be faithful followers of Jesus. We don't follow Jesus for what we want, but what he wants. He gave his life for me. I must give my life to him. The focus of the priests, self-preservation. Cutting the losses. Judas. Mary's focus, loving worship and adoration. What should our focus be? Well, Jesus summed it up in another place in John 13. He said, a new commandment I'm giving you, love each other. As I have loved you, you should love each other. By this, they'll know you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Loving God by loving others is what he's talking about, especially those who need our help the most. My prayer is that Mary's story here will be a catalyst that stirs us up to do some of those beautiful things. She did it as an act of worship. She did not know she was fulfilling scripture. She would be anointing the one who would die for her. Let's love God and let's love others. Let's pray. Jesus, um, when we sing a song like Keep Us Near the Cross, um, what we mean by that is to always remember, be reminded of the great sacrifice that you made to set things right between us and God when we could not do that. To, to keep your sacrifice and your love for us that caused you to lay down your life for us in mind as we go through our world. To walk with, with your eyes and to see things the way you see people. As people created in, in the image of God, as marred and as flawed as that now is, 
but still created in your image. Help us, Lord, to be more like Mary, who devoted what she had. Lord, you take even the smallest offering, but it's done in love and done for the right reasons. It's accepted. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart. Give us that heart, Lord, to follow you, to worship you, to listen to you, loving you as you love us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so this being the, the first Sunday of the month, we, we celebrate, we do one of the two things that actually were commanded by Jesus for all his people. Two commands. He said, go and make disciples and baptize them in my name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the first. The second command was, go and love your neighbors. No, the second command was, uh, remember me. Do this in a remembrance of me. To, to keep it fresh so that we don't treat it in a casual way. But not to do it so often that we just, uh, it becomes less meaningful. So it'll be, to be thinking about it. And... Paul gave us this, and Jesus, it's recorded in the Gospels as well, that on the night he was betrayed, they had that meal in an upper room the night before he went to the cross. And during that meal, which would have been a celebration, probably of the Seder, the, uh, the Passover supper, he took elements from the meal, and he took the first one, which was unleavened bread, uh, a Mediterranean flatbread, no yeast, to remind, that was to remind them that they had had to leave Israel, Egypt so quickly that they couldn't allow time for the bread to rise. They just baked the bread without the yeast. And he took that loaf and he lifted it to heaven and he gave thanks for it and then he broke it, tore it, and he passed it out to the others at the table with him. And he said, in redefining the understanding of that Bread. He said, this is now my body broken for you. When you take this symbol and eat it, remember me. Remember this. And after supper, he took one of the cups on the table, the cup known as the cup of redemption, that symbolized the blood that was put on the doorposts and lintels of their homes so that the avenging angel would not meet anybody in that house because all the firstborns of Egypt perished that night as the avenging angel passed over. But the angel passed over their house instead of in. And he took that and he said, this is now representing the new covenant I'm making with you in my blood because it's one sacrifice for all. No more sacrifice system. One sacrifice for all. And he says, when you drink this, remember me. And so these symbols are for the followers of Jesus. 
Now, you don't have to be a member here. But if you have placed your trust in Jesus, you understand who he is, God in the flesh. You understand what he has done and believe and, and really understand and believe that God did that for you, for your sin, so that the atonement, the sacrifice, covered your transgression, therefore made you accepted and right or declared in the right with God. This is your table. So we take it together. So I encourage you, uh, as we do this, um, and as God, the Holy Spirit, brings things through your mind, anything that you want to get off your chest, now's the time to say, once again, Lord, thank you that you died for this sin too. Forgive me. Don't hold on to them. Don't hold on to them. The worst thing you can do is hold on to things. Anger, bitterness, those other things, resentments. Take it, take the opportunity, make things right. Then partake. This binds us to him and it binds us together as his people. So using our little two-piece individual cups. The first, take the, the first part off. You'll see the wafer if you want to do that. This represents in our, in our church today. This represents the body of the Lord broken for us. Take and eat it and when you do, remember him. And then the cup, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. This represents the new covenant he's making with us. When we do this, take it in remembrance of him. Let's do it together. And Paul, writing in Corinthians, says, and when you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, which we do. Amen? Amen. Got one song we'd want to do, and then we'll, uh, we'll be dismissed.
Christian